Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Please welcome our host, Tom Spohr, Director of the Heritage Foundation Center for Defense. Thank you for joining us today. My name is Tom Spore. I'd like to welcome you to our event, the State of Decision Support Analysis in the DOD. And while this is certainly a very important topic, uh, it is nowhere near as important as what's taking place in the Ukraine, in Ukraine today. And I thought it'd be appropriate to pause for a moment, think about that tragic war and how our thoughts and prayers are with the Ukrainians at this moment. And I think we have a, a, a slide on that. So just a small thing, but this is the Heritage Foundation building, and up at the top, if you squint, you can see that next to the American flag, we're flying the Ukrainian flag today. And so our thoughts and prayers are with them. So now on to our event. What size, what posture, warfighting concepts and equipment should the United States military have to defend our national interests? The Depart Department of Defense makes these decisions every day and made incorrectly these choices can cost U.S. service members their lives or America a war. And while intuition can play a role for the best chance of success, such decisions must be supported by data and analysis. Yet in 2018, the National Defense Strategy Commission found that DOD struggled to link objectives to operational concepts, to capabilities, to programs and resources, and blame this on a deficit in analytical capability, expertise, and processes. A shortfall in DOD analytic capability should be a concern to all Americans. Well, to discuss this critical capability this afternoon, we have an outstanding group of leaders and experts to provide their insights. Each of these leaders has sat at the table when such decisions have been made about what equipment DOD should buy, what the kinds of forces they should maintain, and what type of strategy or force posture the U.S. military should adopt. And as they say, they have been there and done that. Secretary David Norquist, to my immediate left, served as Deputy Secretary of Defense from 2019 to 2021, and before then as an Undersecretary of Defense for Comptroller for two years. He has a distinguished record of public service spanning three decades in multiple key positions. Secretary John Whitley similarly has had a great record of public service. Most recently, he served as Acting Secretary of the Army. Before that, he served from 2019 to 2020 as the Acting Director of OSD's Cost Assessment and Program Evaluation Directorate, otherwise known as CAPE, and before that as the Army's Chief Financial Officer. And finally, Dr. Thomas Mencken is the President and CEO of the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments, a leading DC think tank deeply in engaged in defense analysis. He served as Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Policy Planning, has served on multiple Blue Ribbon Defense Commissions and panels, and is a noted author. So we have a great panel to delve into this issue. Uh, our plan is for me to pose some questions to them for a few minutes, and then after that, we are gonna turn to the questions that you as the audience send to us through the web application uh, you're viewing this program through. So I would encourage you to find the link, find the button that says submit a question and submit it to us. It'll come right to 
us here in this auditorium, and we will do our best to get to as many of your questions as we can. So that, with our backdrop, let's get started. Secretary Norquist, to you first, sir. During your time as Under Secretary of Defense for Comptroller and then as Deputy Secretary of Defense, what was your sense of the state of analytical analysis that supported the major acquisition and force structure decisions confronting the DOD? Did you feel as if you had the necessary analysis to support decision-making that involved investments of billions of dollars? And do any examples come to mind, good and bad, that you could share? Sure. Well, first of all, thank you for, for hosting, Tom, uh, this important event and discuss this topic. As, you, as uh, some of the studies pointed out, when we first came in, the effect of sequestration had been to attrit many of the analytical capabilities of the Department of Defense. And so there was a weakness there in a number of areas. And over the several years, we added additional resources to be able to try and get that back into the place it needed to be. You know, one of the things that I would just highlight as an example of how effectively uh, the analytical support really worked in the Department of Defense is what we called SPEARS. And I'll let John explain the acronym, since I just always use the word SPEARS instead. Strategic uh, Portfolio Review. Strategic Portfolio Review. We always have to have acronyms in DOD, and then we reuse them. Uh, and so this was one that had a lot of the strengths that you need to make analysis work well. So what we do is at the end of one year, we would look ahead while we are still six or more months out and ask the question, what are going to be the real issues we're going to have to wrestle with in this next budget program cycle when we're looking out five years? What are the real challenges? And I'd sit down with John and his team, and we'd say, OK, what's the analysis that we need in order to be able to make those decisions at that time? What's the information we're going to want then? So part of it is you had really well thought out questions, because we'd spend some time wrestling with them to make sure we said them correctly, that we are getting the right thing enough time to do the analysis, and then timing the analysis to show up when the decision makers were most going to need it in order to make a decision. And that sort of alignment can be very tricky. But when you have that, then when we're sitting down making very significant, expensive decisions, we've got the trade-off between the capabilities of either different platforms and munitions or risk assessment or understanding of the requirements. So I found that to be a particularly effective part of the process and one that I relied on consistently when I was deputy secretary. And it was very useful in really helping everyone in leadership make informed decisions. I was more concerned over the long-term force structure uh, type of choices. We didn't seem to have the same sort of robustness that we had. I'll just use an example. Uh, in my last year, I worked on the future uh, Naval Forces study, which was a spin-off of the Navy had traditionally done a 30-year shipbuilding plan. But in the 30-year shipbuilding plan, they tend to only look out five to 10 years lock down what the Navy should look like in that. And then the last 20 years were a flatline projection. But if you realize how long a Navy ships last, 10 years from now, your Navy looks overwhelmingly like it does right now. You can only make the next 10 years, five to 10 years with the ships with the shipyards you have and the capacity you have now. So inevitably, this study, even when done by conscientious, intelligent, rational people, produced a budget and a 30-year plan that looked almost ex exactly like the current force structure. And so when we looked at that, and, and Secretary at the desperate time was very concerned about that, we moved further out the date at which we would lock the structure. It gets harder. The further out you go, the harder it is to understand what the opposition may bring. So you have to be much more tolerant of the range of missions. But you can envision platforms that didn't exist. You can envision quantities that the current shipyards couldn't produce. You could make trades in that space. Navy and Marine Corps are a central part of that mission and that function. The Joint Staff and CAPE came in, and we did that analysis again, 
over multiple months aligned to arrive with the same time as we were locking down that fiscal year's uh, budget. And that was really helpful, but it did require that, from my position as Deputy Secretary, a sustained focus on this one topic. And I really think that's an area where, looking into the future, you'd want to be able to have these types of force structure things done on a more routine basis that doesn't require that much it doesn't require the secretary to direct it and the deputy to sort of manage and meet with everybody on it. So let me stop there. I know we got a lot of good questions coming, but well, there were some good, some bad, but a lot of it got better over time when we put some more resources on it. Excellent. Thank you so much. So, uh, Secretary Whitley, turning to you, you served as the acting director of uh, cost analysis program evaluation, CAPE, uh, the lead analytic organization in the office of the Secretary of Defense. I'm curious, what types of analysis were you responsible for producing? What was your sense of CAPE? and the department's overall analytic capability. Were you satisfied with the analysis being done, and how was it? How well do you think it was supporting the secretary and the deputy secretary's needs in decision-making? Well, that's great, Tom, and, and happy to talk about that. And thank you uh, for having this session. Yeah, so CAPE, Cost Assessment Program Evaluation, it really contributes uh, or, or conducts three kind of broad categories of analysis. Um, the first would be uh, cost estimating. So that is primarily focused on acquisition programs and estimating the costs of acquisition programs. The second would be kind of program analysis. This would inform the, the planning program, budgeting execution system, the program review process, uh, the, the strategic portfolio reviews would be part of this, although they, they tend to be a little more strategic at the strategic end of this, uh, but really program evaluation, program analysis. And the third would be kind of the strategic analysis that I think you kind of led in and, and what the NDS Commission found was, was a serious uh, shortfall. So of those three broad categories of analysis at CAPE, and CAPE has kind of is organizationally aligned around those uh, pillars, one deputate for cost, two deputates for program analysis, and one for the strategic analysis. Of those, the first two, the cost and the program uh, analysis, they're, they're pretty mature, right? I mean, I think they're, uh, I think most people are familiar with them, uh, what CAPE does in those roles. Uh, they produce uh, results, uh, the cost estimators produce results uh, for each system, for each milestone uh, coming up. The program review, uh, you know, that's a repeated process every year, and I think people are familiar with that, and, and those are very mature. They could certainly be improved on the margin. On the cost estimating side, uh, acquisition costs, uh, the, the direct procurement costs are pretty well estimated. The operations sustainment costs aren't. Hmm. Uh, there's been a multi-year effort now to capture more data for ONS, for operations and sustainment, and I think that's an area that's, that's going to be improving over the next few years. And that's becoming more important as we think about trying to accelerate the development timeline, we think about trying to move more things into the digital space, uh, getting to understand the trade space between upfront development design, uh, the acquisition and the, the manufacturing of the product, and, and the sustainment of the product is going to become more important. Uh, a second challenge with them on the methodological side is is they're very wed uh, for good reasons uh, to using historic data from historic programs. Uh, that's good because you're trying to inject realism. The last time we did this, what did it actually look like? Not the what might be the overly optimistic uh, projections in the future. I think a fair criticism would be maybe you, they focus a little too much, though. And so when you have new things coming along, digital transformation, as a service buying, thinking about satellites and moving more into commercial types of satellites, uh, there's a little bit of a bias against those things. So I think there's some areas for improvement there. But overall, very mature, very positive. Program uh, analysis, second area, again, very mature. David talked about uh, the spears. Um, at the margins, uh, David already talked about this. You know. Uh, it's very good on weapon systems, 
less good on readiness, less good on force structure. So I think there's some areas uh, to improve there. They almost, methodologically, they almost have the opposite problem. Uh, they always look to the future, modeling and simulation, very reluctant, uh, uh, not a lot of strength at looking at uh, realized performance data. That's mm -hmm. going to become more important as the audit matures, mm -hmm. as the data gets better, the department gets better data. So a uh, uh, little bit of room for improvement there. But again, uh, very mature uh, established process. Uh, where I think the biggest challenge is in CAPE is uh, that strategic analysis. And this is, you know, the ability to translate strategic direction, the national defense strategy, into its implications for force structure, posture, capability requirements, et cetera, and then to be able to bridge that down to the programming. If that phase isn't working, then the programmers are kind of working in the dark. So I think that's where uh, we need uh, the biggest improvement. We might talk uh, throughout this session about what happened. Uh, David already talked about the sequester and, and, and the process that was in place was kind of taken away, uh, was, was eliminated uh, 10 or so years ago. Uh, there's a, some strong efforts to rebuild it. Uh, I'm seeing very positive signs from some of the organizations involved in trying to, to get in front of these questions. But uh, unfortunately, the state of play of today is that's a significant gap in the department's capabilities. Thank you very much. Excellent. You know, and it's funny you mentioned the ONS cost because the F-35 has moved past arguments about its acquisition costs, and now all the arguments are about its ONS costs. Uh, Dr. Mankin, so you, you've obviously had a very distinguished career working both in and outside of DOD, more probably time outside than some of our other panels here, and you were a member of the National Defense Strategy Commission, the actual commission that found shortcomings in DOD's ability to conduct analysis. and. Previously, you've been involved in conducting quadrennial defense reviews and national defense strategies. Now in your role as the president and CEO of the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments, you work very closely with DOD and often support their needs for analysis. I'm wondering how have you seen the DOD's ability to conduct analysis change over time, and where do you think it stands today? Well, first, Tom, thanks. Uh, thanks for inviting me. Uh, it's, it's wonderful to be able to share the stage with uh, uh, with with you and the other the other panelists, and thanks also for taking on this decidedly uh, unsexy but uh, vitally important topic. Uh, and uh, you know, it's 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 something that it, we don't talk about enough, and we should we should talk about more because analysis is a I'll say a potentially you know powerful lever not just to inform decisions but also to implement decisions. So I I, I, uh, I commend you for taking this on. Um, look. Put it in, uh, let, me, let me try to add to, uh, to what my colleagues have already said and put this into some perspective, which is over the last 20 years, there have been two big shifts, strategic shifts, in the way the Defense Department plans and, 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 and analyzes, right? So the first, if we go back to uh, just before, even just after 9-11, the, the focus was really on regional adversaries and regional threats. And so we had a, you know, we had an analytical enterprise that was focused on regional conflicts. Think the Korean Peninsula, you know, think Southwest Asia. Then 9-11 happened, and there was a whole reorientation of that enterprise towards the war in Iraq, the war in Afghanistan, the global war on terrorism, irregular warfare. And, and I was, you know, I was there for part of part of that shift. And that was a, that was a painful, that was a painful shift. And now, and I'd say, you know, starting particularly with the 2018 National Defense Strategy, there's an ongoing shift to great power competition and its corollary, which we're un unfortunately seeing uh, play out in Eastern Europe, which is great power 
conflict. And so, you know, the, the, that analytical enterprise overlaid over uh, BCA, sequester, uh, uh, loss of talent, you know, has, has been this conceptual shift. And um, it's a, it needs to occur. It should be occurring faster. But I also understand why it takes time to, to shift conceptually. So I'd say that's, that's kind of in, ingredient number one. Ingredient number two is it's about 21st century warfare. Um, we're, you know, we're out of the era where it was all about platforms. We're much more in an era where it's about networks and systems of systems. How do you really model and analyze those things? How do you value, you know, how do you, how do you value um, connectivity, for example? How do you value new domains of warfare? I think that's a second challenge. Uh, the third, you know, third challenge has already been mentioned, which is the, the, the loss of intellectual capital for various, for various reasons. Uh, and then I, I think the fourth thing that I would highlight is the organizational dimension uh, to it. And I was really picking up on Secretary Whitley's uh, comment, which is um, traditionally the way to translate strategy you know, into analysis was through the uh, Office of the Undersecretary of Defense for Policy. And not to be too parochial for my, my own organization, but uh, that's, that's the seat at the table that really ensures that analysis is serving as the instantiation of strategy and, and driving its implementation forward. And, and I think, unfortunately, across administrations, uh, that role has been, has been diminished, and I think uh, ultimately to, uh, you know, to our, uh, to our uh, not, not, not to the better, not to the better. Excellent. Uh, just a quick follow-up on that. You talked about the loss of intellectual capital. I'm, I know you're in the marketplace for DOD intellectual. I mean, do you see this in your current position? That is, it is just hard to find the right people to do this kind of work. Uh, absolutely. You know, and and you know, in the uh, if you go back to the Cold War, uh, you know, there there was a you know there was a whole community of defense analysts and academic programs and various, you know, various places inside, outside of government training up analysts. And we sort of lived off of the, that, intellectual, that, that investment in intellectual capital for a long time afterwards. But um, a lot of that's gone away. People, people have retired. Really, you know, world-class analysts uh, are, are out of the game. So we need to, you know, we need to rebuild. And, um, and not rebuild for Cold War 2.0, but rebuild for the 21st century. I think we do face a real, a real talent deficit, and many of the places that, in you know, in past decades would have supplied that talent, just they just not, aren't doing that anymore. Thank you. So uh, this, some more questions here. These are going to come a little quicker, and and again, I invite our audience members to submit questions. Some of you are already doing so, and I thank you for that. So. Uh, Secretary Norquist, I'll start with you, but then I would invite mm -hmm. the other panelists to to chime in with your thoughts. I'm curious. Uh, why is it uh, so hard to conduct good analysis in the Pentagon? What are some of the, the complicating factors that inhibit you know, the, the, the ability to reach the right decisions? So I'll start with, and then have the others join in. But the first answer is good analysis anywhere is hard. Right? When you actually talk about a quality analysis of looking at a difficult problem that, and finding an answer that others don't automatically see, you've you got to understand whether your assumptions are the right ones or the wrong ones. You've got to understand a whole issues of quality control and the quality of the data you're looking at. There are, are hidden biases, not in the sense of the person, but in terms of how you frame something or look at it. Uh, most people have a challenge with statistics just generally and the difference between correlation and causation and a lot of those things. So it's kind of like walking along the edge of a steep hill. It's really easy to fall down the hill, and it's really hard to stay going straight. Plus, you have to have leadership willing to engage and take action on the data you have. 
Uh, and so let me just pause there, and they can walk through some of the DOD-specific ones. But my only first thought is, this is hard wherever you try and do it, unless you have a system or an organization that just is almost all they do all the time. I would just add to that, uh, building on your comments, actually, is, it's, you know, it's hard to do. And then that where I think a lot of us think the biggest gap is that strategic integration, that strategic analysis piece. When your paradigms are changing, you're moving from a two major theater war construct where you, and you've, you've spent years kind of building an infrastructure to support that, then that shifts to a counterterrorism, counterinsurgency. You spend years in that paradigm. So now, you know, we have this new uh, returning to uh, near peer uh, major adversary type of, of conflict. It's, it, it simply, uh, it takes time and you have to build an infrastructure to be able to analyze questions in that framework. Yeah, good, good, good analysis is a craft. And I think if we go back and look, you know, go back to the, the early Cold War, go back to, and look at the early nuclear era and a place like the Rand Corporation then, it was treated as a craft. And people took a long time to conceptualize a, an issue, to lay out assumptions to figure out the best way to gain traction on the issue and then move forward. I think what happened progressively over time is that analysis has become kind of an industrial process. And maybe ironically, the more resources that we threw at analysis, the more kind of industrialized uh, it, it became. So it's all about, it, it was all about, you know, building all these models, uh, that took, you know, legions of people to to feed kind of like, you know, the first, uh, uh, you know, uh, boilers on ships. You know, you needed all these people to shovel coal into the boiler to make the ship go. Um, and and over time, I think a lot of the thoughtfulness kind of just went away. And so I think what we need today is, you know, is to is to go back to thinking about analysis as a craft. So put it very starkly. If we are in an era uh, defined by competition and potentially conflict with China and Russia, what are the types of analytical tools that we need to equip senior leaders to make decisions? You know, we, we, we talk all about you know, great power competition, but what are the analytical tools to actually look at that? We talk about shaping uh, imposing costs on, on adversaries. Okay, what are the tools that we have to actually measure our ability to impose costs on others, and quite frankly, their, the, the very real costs that they've imposed upon us? When you're talking about that, you know, I, I was thinking about testimony we've heard from DOD officials when they come over to Congress and talk, and what you never hear is somebody like the Secretary of Defense or the Undersecretary of Policy would will say something like, and our models and simulations and analysis reflects that if we do this, it will result in that. You never hear that. I mean, I know it's all classified, so we're never going to hear the see the real stuff, but we're you just don't hear the any kind of even hint that their decisions are being influenced by this kind of analytic basis. At least that's my sensing. Excellent. Um, I guess, uh, Secretary Whitley, I would ask you this question because it's almost a uh, I'm asking or quick curious, how is strategic analysis? currently organized at the department level? I know you left, but it hadn't been that long ago. And is, do you think it's working? Are the various players in this organization cooperating? Is it working well? And are they, is this the best way that you think we are organized now? Is this the best way 
to organize our capabilities? Uh, I think it's struggling right now. Yeah. So the traditional, by traditional I mean, uh, you know, post-Cold War, uh, post-Goldwater-Nichols uh, kind of organization is, is there's really three key players at the departmental level, and that is policy, um, that is joint staff, and then is CAKE. Uh, they've been called the three amigos in the past. They've been called the tri chairs in the past. Uh, they've uh, they've been called uh, much worse than that. As well. <laughs> um, just just so, to their faces. Uh, I certainly think you can find periods where where productive uh, work was being done and where progress was being made. But you can also find periods where it didn't work. It, it depends on personalities. And right now, is what we've been talking about up here, all three of us, uh, a lot of the tools uh, aren't there. Uh, to really, the tools aren't up to, and the human capital in some places is not up to uh, doing that. So, uh, where we need to be. There's a lot of reasons why we're struggling right now. Uh, uh, Secretary Norquist mentioned the um, the sequester area, uh, CAPE and policy both uh, divested a significant amount of that capability uh, as part of their uh, uh, contribution to sequester. Joint staff has had its own challenges. They've moved uh, some of these functions from J8 to J7. It's very hard uh, for a new organization, particularly an organization that's not, uh, that doesn't have the regular repeated battle rhythm and credibility and discipline that being part of the budget process that J8 has. Uh, it's hard for other offices to sometimes uh, get to the level of somebody like uh, the analytic folks at J8. So I think there's a lot of, of structural reasons and, and historical reasons why we're struggling right now. So I think uh, fixing that, I, I don't know what all the answers are to fix that. I think that'll be an important element of the, the commission uh, that, uh, that the, the Defense Authorization Act has uh, directed. I think that should be a, an important part of that is trying to uh, re-envision uh, that process, uh, get the right players, get the right organizations, get the right tools, uh, get the right authorities in place uh, to, to, to get that where it needs to be. Let me, and for the other uh, panelists here, I, so for me, I've always hated being like the co-chair or like a three, three co-chair kind of thing, whatever that's called, tri-chair, I guess. Um, and so my instinct as a military officer is to always put one person in charge of something. But that may not be appropriate. I'm just curious, should, should DOD have a single analytic center of excellence? Or is it is this the right way and it just needs to be run properly? So there's a, part of the reason why you don't see that in DOD is the purpose of the analysis is not simply the report at the end. It is bringing along the players who have to all reach this. And if they don't trust the information, if they don't trust the report, to the extent that an outside entity comes back and says the answer is seven, everyone would assume that well, that's their position right. and they'll all come up with their own. So when we did like the future naval force study, when CAPE does some of we had the Navy, we had the Marine Corps, we had outside organizations, we had CAPE, we, got, we brought a whole bunch of them together so that they all saw the analysis because part of that is it's the journey the analysis takes you on from what you don't know to what you learn and then done right, people will all realize the same, not the same answer, but the same situation, the boundaries, the trade space. And that then you can have a conversation. But you actually need all of those organizations to come with you. And so my fear is if you took it out, they'd all recreate their own and then they'd use it to second guess the first one because they weren't part of the process. Excellent point. I hadn't even thought of that. Uh, yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. And, and you know, I, I, don't, uh, I don't think I'm looking uh, at the past through rose-colored glasses, but uh, at least when, you know, when I was part of that process, it, it, worked, it worked very well. And I think the, the relationship I had with my, uh, dating myself, uh, PA&E and, uh, <laughs> and joint staff uh, counterparts was, was a very good, productive one. Didn't mean that we agreed, each of us agreed with each other 100% of the time. 
Uh, but usually at least two of the three of us agreed. And then, and then a lot can a lot can happen. But as Secretary Norquist says, I mean, ultimately it's about informing decision makers. And it is, you know, uh, you're you're, you're going to be much more helpful if you can get uh, a lot of buy-in on the on the path to that to that decision. So excellent, thank you. So Secretary Norquist, I'm going to throw this one to you. This has been uh, an issue that's in the press. It's not directly related to analytic capability, but on the other hand, it is. And that is, uh, there is talk writing about newly appointed civilian leaders in the Pentagon, mm -hmm. political leaders in particular, um, and an extraordinary disadvantage when they show up in the Pentagon and all the people around them are, have been versed for years in all the various lore of the Pentagon. They know the analytic procedures. They know their advantages and disadvantages. Uh, they're facing off against officers in uniform who've been doing this for a living, and they're playing for keeps. Mm -hmm. uh, is that a real thing? Um, and if so, what can be done to kind of better balance uh, that? So if you come into the Pentagon from outside, you had a background in commercial, et cetera, you bring with you a set of skills that, and exposures that other people don't have. But you also don't have an inside the building understanding. So you'd have that disadvantage. But you generally don't see an entire administration filled with outsiders. right? What you discover is they bring in a mix. And so for example, I first worked in the Pentagon in 89 when there was still a Soviet Union and did programming and budgeting. And I have done that for 30 years. So when I'm in the building, I'm looking across people who arrived after I did. Right, who don't remember some of the things I worked with or the people I worked with in multiple assignments. So what's necessary to be effective if you come from the outside is to make sure you have enough people with you who have been part of this process long enough to be able to explain, here's how you make happen what you're asking for. Here's the right office to lead it or to be part of the team. Here's the timeline you need to allow. And so I think if you have that mix, it can be very effective, which is why when you come into some place where you only know part of the puzzle, you need to surround yourself with the people who know the other parts. Excellent. Any any other panelists comment on this? I would actually, without taking us too far afield, um, I'd, I'd actually broaden this out because you, you have this framed in terms of in this whole session, uh, framed in terms of DoD, which I think is absolutely right. Uh, I would just say at this point, though, that in some ways, the the, the in a lot of ways, the system that we have in DoD uh, is far better than the systems that many of our allies have. Mm. And so, where you know the the the, the problem that you po you pose here, a new political appointee, new political leadership comes in, uh, and is at the at the mercy of uh, you know of the uh, of the public service and and the military. Uh, it, to the extent that that may be an issue in our system, it is much more of an issue among many of our allies. And so, when when I talk about you know rebuilding intellectual capital. It applies doubly to many of our allies. That's just something that we should note as we move forward. I got uh, something for you, Dr. Mencken, and that has got to do with this idea of uh, insourcing and outsourcing mm -hmm. analysis for the Department of Defense. And I don't know, you know, I don't have a long history of this, but I've seen recently a number of studies outsourced to the uh, private sector or our federally financed research and development sectors. And I know you're not completely impartial on this topic, oh. but I was curious about your perspective. Yeah, well, so I think, I mean, in, first off, I think in some ways it's a false dichotomy. Yeah. Because, and I'll say, you know, when, when I was uh, in the Pentagon uh, doing analysis, much of the analysis that we did, we sponsored say, federally funded research and development centers to actually do the analysis. So uh, it's not, you know, it's, it's, not, uh, it's not just us versus them, whoever the us and whoever the them is. I think it, it is, you know, it's, a, it's an ecosystem, first off. Second, um, I do think it's it, it's important to have 
independent analysis uh, and you know kind of uh, uh, independent looks at at, at various things um, for many reasons, but including just to build credibility. So you know, you Tom talked about uh, uh, officials testifying before Congress. I think I think members are justifiably skeptical across administrations. I mean, this is a this is a executive versus legislative branch thing. This is a constitutional thing, not a partisan thing. Um, I think legislators are justifiably skeptical of members of the executive branch coming to testify about matters uh, because they know that those folks come with talking points. And I think one of the things that's really struck me since coming to CSBA is the lack of resources that members of Congress, their staffs, committees have to, to make judgment, analytical judgments. CRS is a, is, is a wonderful uh, institution, um, uh, but it, it, it pales in comparison to the analytical resources that the Defense Department services have. So I think there's a, and there is an important role for outside independent organizations to inform, inform that debate for the legislature, also for the executive. Any other comments? I, I would just add and build on that, I, and I agree. It's it's not a it's not an either or situation. It's a continuum, mm -hmm. and you know I think there are certain variables that, that correlate, right? Inherently governmental functions, uh, uh, you're you're going to keep in house, and you know you might have outside analyses and form, but you're, but it's going to be tightly controlled. Uh, as you get further and further from inherently governmental functions and more broad and more strategic type questions, uh, the the aperture opens. Uh, uh, timeliness, uh, you know, you're going to use your in-house staff for the question that has to be answered tomorrow. You know, there's no time to call somebody. There's no time to set up a contract. There's no time to engage and, and have somebody else have, pay a fixed cost of learning. So, you know, but the question that needs to be answered in a year and you want an independent view of, ideally suited. Uh, so you have in-house analytic capability. You have the, the, the very close touch, federally funded research and development corporations, and you have the broader ecosystem uh, beyond that. So I, I, it's not an either or, it's a continuum. Uh, and uh, uh, the situation and the requirements and the factors of an individual case uh, place you in that spectrum. Thank you. I can go. Okay, good. Um, so uh, we're going to go to Dakota Wood, who's with us in the auditorium here, and he's been monitoring and looking at the audience questions coming in and has got the, the best one teed up for first here. So, Dakota. Well, the conversations actually addressed a number of them. You know, one from uh, Bill Soderbergh uh, really was, does all this need to be centralized as opposed to left to the services? But, but some of the discussion has gotten that. Uh, a related one was how do you rationalize all these multiple incoming streams of data uh, but you wanted different viewpoints on this thing. So I think that the one that then naturally flows from this comes from Matthew Stevens, and the question was, uh, should defense industry be integrated into this analytic work about future force development and all? You know, that you've got this government versus industrial-based sort of thing. Is that letting them inside the wire, or is that a critical viewpoint and they should be involved in that uh, decision-making analysis? Good. Anyone want to take a first? So I'll start, and then I'll, yeah, I'll start. So here's a place where I think you know it's particularly valuable for their input, and that is, the government folks will make an assumption about what industry can and can't do, and what is easy or hard for industry, but they're not in industry, right? They're not working with it, and so you can easily see how, in building your your plan, your assumption there is your weakest, and if you're dealing with folks in industry who say you don't understand, changing that is actually a really long, hard process this is quick, that's easy for us to do, This then all of a sudden you have a much better understanding of the realm that is possible, and 
it prevents you from the risk of only assuming the things you already know can be done, whereas part of the, I mean, part of the strategic advantage of the United States over China or anyone else is our free market system and the innovation that comes from that and being able to tap and understand from them the vision of what they see as the possible that the government isn't seeing really reduces a blind spot. So I'll pause and see what else you guys want to add. I'll, I'll just add a few brief points and then turn it over. Um, so, uh, uh, and it's already been said, uh, in terms of the question of centralization and central direction, I, you know, I would, uh, you know, competition among analysts is a good thing. That's already been said here, but it's worth repeating. So I, I, I think uh, the fact that the services have robust analytic capability, that the OSD, the Office of Secretary of Defense has robust analytic capability, that, that think tanks and that others have robust analytic capability, uh, and that sometimes they come to different answers, that's a good thing. That's that's helping decision makers wrestle with the different aspects of the problem. And in respect to industry, I would just add, uh, elaborate even further on, on Secretary Norquist's points. Uh, you know, I think, you know, again, uh, not central direction, but I think collaboration uh, could be enhanced and improved. I think many of the many of the companies in industry uh, have very robust uh, capabilities, you know, and, and they have strategic rationales, right? They're trying to 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 see where a program going or seeing where a requirement or a mission is going and get there, you know, the the skate to where the puck is going to be type of analogy uh, for defense contractors. Uh, so, you know, they have specific reasons why it's it's in their interest to do it, but they're but as part of doing that, they're creating they have. They have incredible expertise, and they're creating uh, incredible amounts uh, of information, sometimes even closer to the technology than the DOD analysts are. So I think uh, that's a, a latent capability out there that could be captured and could be uh, used uh, more effectively. Yeah, another area is analytical tools, because I think uh, defense industry or parts of defense industry have some very good analytical tools uh, that could be shared. Uh, and then finally, uh, as, if you will, uh, you know, as users of some of the analytical scenarios that DOD uses. Like if you want to, if, if, if part of the, uh, the, uh, the idea here is to steer the ship and get you know, the whole ship going on the same, on the same course and heading, um, you probably should share the scenarios that the Defense Department is using to make decisions. And at least in my experience, that's, you know, um, sometimes easier said than done. Uh, yeah, we have run against, as a think tank, we have a hard, hard time understanding the DOD's uh, scenarios. So, Dakota, back to you. Yeah, we do have more. I mean, uh, you know, Stephen Hefner had mentioned about this multiple data sets, and you have all these players involved. And so then um, a, a question from Paul uh, Maisel uh, rolls right into that. What impact does uh, newer technologies like machine learning and artificial intelligence, what role does that have to play uh, you know, anything yet? Would it be in the future? And then there is there a danger of handing it to a machine to come out with an answer and, you know, taking the people out of the loop? So just kind of these new technologies and how they relate to handling all this information. I'll, I'll just start off with maybe a, a slightly different take on it, which is how do we portray new technologies and new processes in our analysis? So we're talking about uh, costs. Right? We're talking about costs and operations and sustainment costs. Well, across a number of areas in defense industry, you know, uh, we're moving towards and, and into digital engineering, digital twinning. Um, if, you know, if the promise of that is realized, that should result in reduced costs uh, across the, the life cycle of a particular weapon system. Um, how much do we buy that? How much should we buy that? How, uh, our, our assumptions there, uh, again, industrial age assumptions that maybe need to be uh, updated, 
Uh, that's one example. And then you could, again, think about the value of information. Again, if you just get at the heart of much of what we've been doing uh, in, in recent years, recent decades, it's all about the value of information. How do we portray the value of information in our analysis? Uh, I think those are, those, are, those are big questions, and I think those are questions that are still, still need to be addressed in fundamental ways. So a couple of, just a couple of thoughts on this one. One is, is that you really have to be careful about transparency versus the black box. And so when you use artificial intelligence and others, if you run them and then the answer is seven, and no one knows why, you've lost 90% of the value of the analysis. So you really got to make sure that whatever tool you use is transparent about it. Now, one of the advantages of those is you can have AI systems play against each other. Imagine it's like a, just use like a board game, like a war game. Two people play each other, they're going to quickly fall into the ruts of their previous experience. You have AI systems play each other, they could produce outcomes that are completely unexpected. Then you can go back and go, why? Was it something wrong in the algorithm, or have they experimented with something that we didn't see was possible? Then the result is not the conclusion, but the learning about what is possible or not possible that then supports future analysis. The other angle to, to AI is, you talk about new technologies. Take AI and hypersonics. Hypersonics, I know the, the weight of the explosive I can put in it. All I know is I can go really fast. You can model that. You can envision that. It's like you, it, it isn't hard to experiment with the implications of that. AI. AI will allow you to change what? How? It's not clear, right? And, and so it's almost impossible to envision how do I model effectively the effects of AI until I can see the breakthrough that it produces either in readiness or accuracy or something else. So certain things lend themselves very easily to updating your, your analysis, and other ones introduce a wild card, and your thought is, I'm not sure how that's going to change it, because until we see its use, it's a big open space. Two quick ones if we got time. One. Well, there's one for Secretary Whitley in particular. Uh, James Bexfield uh, had asked about the importance of campaign models which related to this issue of, yep. you know, uh, opacity and, and yep. what you can really see. But then Carly Goldenberg, specifically the secretary, said, in what ways is decision support analysis linked to Army readiness? So you could see this blending of yep. real-world modeling, a lot of analytic, and how does it actually affect the services in the real world? Well, let me, let me respond to Bex first. Uh, so, um, uh, and I think I know where he is on this, so, so we'll see if I... Uh, <laughs> Uh, he'll let me know afterwards if I get it wrong. Um, you know, that was part of the debate about 10 years ago and what really led to, uh, which was uh, part of the motivating factors for uh, what led to that atrophy, that divestiture of a lot of that capability. And, and the concern with, with, with campaign analysis in, in, in at least uh, its form at that time was, was the, the intensity, the computational intensity, the labor intensity, the, the time it took to produce results. So uh, the issue was if, if, if I'm not going to produce things that are timely and responsive to a deputy secretary, if he, he needs to know something in a week and I, it's going to take me six months to come up with an answer, why are we doing it? So I think the, the, the criticism, the concern was correct. The, the answer and what came next was perhaps not correct. So campaign analysis is a very important tool and has a very important role to play. Uh, and I think uh, some of that's being rebuilt right now. 
but you can't over rely on it, right? And we need to be able to, A, do very detailed campaign analysis, that's fine, but we also need to figure out how, and, and people are working on this, but we need to be able to figure out how to do things at a higher level uh, that can get you more rapid iterations and, and, and look at a broader swath of problems. And I don't know if that's technically called campaign analysis or if that's a variation that's not called campaign analysis, but it's something else. Uh, but that's what we, we need to, to integrate in addition to campaign analysis. Uh, with respect to uh, to the Army, I mean, I, I don't think the Army is unique in, in, in that respect, right? I mean, I think uh, uh, all of the department has a struggle analytically thinking about readiness. Um, the department is not good at tying a resource level to a readiness level. The Army does not program readiness. The Army, you know, or the Department of Defense uh, grows O&M accounts at inflation, operations and maintenance accounts at inflation. There is not a programmatic decision about what the investment should be in training, in depot overhauls, et cetera, and what readiness level that would deliver. I think that's a significant weakness, and I, I wouldn't take it too far. Uh, it's never going to be uh, a precise science, uh, but we're at the other end of the problem right now, which is, is we have virtually no... Uh, maybe exaggerating a little bit, but we have very little analytic capability to do that. Thank you. So uh, we're at the end of our time, we're nearly there, and so I'm going to ask each of our panelists to answer a question. That is, if there was one thing that could be done to Im improve the quality of analysis and DOD decision-making, what would that be? And, and even more specifically, does Congress have a role in this? Because I have been told Congress is looking at this area, uh, perhaps in this upcoming legislative session. And so what in your word, in your thoughts could be done in this area? I'll start with you, Secretary. So first, I'd highlight that of all the things DOD spends its money on, the analysis is actually one of the least expensive because it's, it's a certain number of people getting labor costs, and if you can get right the mix between two munitions or between aircraft things, you've saved yourself enormous sums of money. And so I would make sure that uh, we expand and look at the, the range of places where that analysis is not being applied and be able to try and take advantage of it in additional places. We use it well in certain ones, but I think in some places we don't go there because we don't have the capability. And if we did, you'd be able to see some of the same rate of returns that you do here. And I'm going to, to cop out a little bit and, and not offer solutions, but but just highlight the problem space that we've already <laughs> that we've already highlighted. I think that strategic analysis is that bridge between strategy to programming is the biggest analytic deficit in the department today, and uh, so the biggest contribution uh, moving forward is fixing that. Thank you. And I would agree. You know, building off of that, and it's it's really you know rebuilding that intellectual capital. Uh, at the you know at the intersection of uh, of strategy operations and and budgets. Thank you very much. Well, as always, I always want more, and we never have enough time for it. I guess that's the way you should leave your audience is wanting more versus feeling like they're too full. So, uh, what a great session! I'd like to thank our panelists, uh, Secretary Norquist, Secretary Whitley, and Dr. Mankin for their insights. I want to thank our audience for sticking with us and joining us, and thank you for your questions. Uh, if you work on the Hill or in a think tank, or just have other questions, you know, please reach out to us. We'll give you our contact information at the end, and we'd love to uh, keep talking about this. At the end, uh, uh, in a little bit, you'll get a survey asking us how we did, and we'd appreciate your candid feedback on that. You will be able to find this program in its entirety uh, posted on the Heritage.org website as well as on YouTube probably in a day or so. But for the meanwhile, uh, let's keep the Ukrainians in our thoughts and prayers, and everybody have a great rest of your day. Thank you.
the sound of the camera. <laughs> <laughs>